0: Welcome to Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. My guest this week is Rock and Roll Hall of Fame drummer and entrepreneur Matt Sorum. But first of all, you might have wondered how many people actually stream music in the United States. I know I have. Well, Music Watch says there are 209 million streamers in the U.S., What's amazing about this is it's 86% of the population age 13 and older, and it's about 110 million more than there were 10 years ago. Now, if we look at the streaming platforms that people tend to use, worldwide now, 32% use Spotify, Apple is 16%, Amazon Music, 13%, Tencent, which is Chinese, 13%, YouTube Music by Google, 8%, NetEase, Again, another Chinese streaming platform, 4%. Deezer, 2%. Yandex, yet another Asian streaming platform, 1%. Pandora, only 1%. And all the others, and there's 27 or 28, put them all together, they're 9%. Now, what's interesting here is some of these are growing faster than others. It might surprise you that the fastest growing one is YouTube Music. Tencent is second, and Amazon Music is third, and Apple Music is lagging behind. Now, it's still growing, but not nearly as much as it used to. What I find particularly interesting here is the fact that 86% of the population of the United States is streaming already. Now, that might get up into the 90s, but it also means there's not a whole lot of growth available. Now, the second thing that I find interesting is the fact that For the longest time, we always thought that once you subscribe to a music streaming platform like Spotify, you're pretty much not going to change because it's a pain to change. But we're seeing more and more people decide, oh, maybe I like YouTube music better. Maybe I like Apple music better. There's a lot of people that actually have two and three streaming memberships, which is kind of weird because everybody has the same product. It's not like you're getting something different like on the video streaming platforms where there are exclusives on each one and that makes you want to have a membership for each one. So we're in an ever-changing world when it comes to streaming. That being said, we are starting to top out on growth. So watch how that works with the music business because right now everybody's riding high. That might not last much longer. (music) If you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyosinski.com. Don't forget about my online courses on mixing, production, branding, and music business success at Courses.com. Also, get an expert analysis and objective opinion of your songs and mixes as a member of my Hitmakers Club. Go to hitmakersclub.com to learn more. Now, if you really like synthesizers, especially vintage ones, or you've just been around for a long time, then you know the name Oberheim means a great-sounding analog synthesizer. And Oberheim was one of the giants in the 70s and 80s. Unfortunately, the company went into bankruptcy in 1985, and eventually Gibson bought the trademark and licensed the name to several companies, including the Italian organ maker Viscount. Now, a couple things happened from there. When Gibson was taken over by new management in 2019, they turned around and returned the US trademark to Tom Oberheim, the founder and the namesake of the company. They did that just as a gesture of goodwill, which, good for them. Now, this goes another step, because that was just in the US. Behringer actually assumed the trademark in the rest of the world, and the reason why they could assume it is because it wasn't used for 20 years. So because of lack of use, Behringer now gets the trademark and the company is about to come out with some vintage Oberheim synthesizer knockoffs. So what they tried to do first is apply for a patent under the name Behringer Oberheim, but the patent was rejected. So I guess Behringer figured, well, we're not going to get any more mileage out of this name. So they returned it to Tom Oberheim as well. Now this is the first time in 36 years that he's able to have that name trademarked in all of the world. So here's a couple of things that are going to happen now. We're going to see some new synthesizers coming out from the new Oberheim, but we're also going to see some Oberheim knockoffs come from Behringer as well. Behringer is really good at doing this. They reverse engineer a lot of gear, name it something different, make it look somewhat similar, and you know that's their business model but that being said you might want to hold out and get the real deal i guess this week is rock and roll hall of fame drummer matt sorum who held the drum chair for guns N' roses for seven years as well as stints with the cult and velvet revolver Matt's reputation as a musician's musician has placed him squarely at the center of Hollywood's A-list community of artists, working on projects with legends like Alice Cooper, Steven Tyler, and Joe Perry of Aerosmith, Billy F. Gibbons from ZZ Top, Joe Elliott from Def Leppard, Robin Zander from Cheap Trick, and Brian May from Queen. Quite the entrepreneur as a founder of six startup companies, Matt sits on the Global Blockchain Business Council at UCLA and has spoken at the World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland. He's even created his own beer line, appropriately named The Drummer. Matt's autobiography, Double Talk and Jive, true rock and roll stories from the drummer of Guns N' Roses, The Cult, and Velvet Revolver, is available soon wherever books are sold. During the interview, we spoke about Matt's contribution to the Buddy Rich tribute album, getting his first big break, Lemmy and Motorhead stories, his entrepreneurship and charitable causes, his new biography, and much more. I spoke with Matt via Zoom. let's start back at the beginning though i want to know how you got into the music business originally how did it all happen
1: <laughs> well i luckily grew up in the 60s you know i i was born in uh, long beach california and i had two older brothers that were really music guys you know and i remember you know i remember like i was so young I've, i was too young to miss the first time the beatles came on ed sullivan But I I was old enough to remember at about five years old when they came on, I think it was the third time they appeared on Ed Sullivan. And that was a big deal for families in those days. You know, on a Sunday night, you would sit in front of the the variety show. So there we were plopped on the couch watching the RCA television, you know, the big box, right? And uh, popcorn, stuff like that. And I Ringo just caught my eye, man. And I was a little kid, you know, I was five years old and I was it. I pointed at the TV and I, I said to my mom, oh, I, he just was, he was like a cartoon character, you know, they all were. And uh, that was pretty much it. That was the pinnacle moment. And, you know, years later I got to meet him and I told him that. And he says, I said, you're the reason I'm a drummer. And he said, I hear that all the time. <laughs> <laughs> so i'm sure it happened for a lot of guys you know or girls or whoever wanted to be a musician i mean those guys were bigger than life and so that was pretty much it and then obviously throughout the 60s i got my first record it was a 45 my brother had one of those little crossley turntables you know there was yeah. like a you know a little box and i played the hard days night uh 45 over and over again and then i got you know started banging on boxes and pots and pans and my mom finally bought me a little drum set. Um, on my sixth birthday, I got this little like Sears drum set and that was it. And my brothers hated it. So they like trashed it. And then I got a St. George silver sparkle or a blue sparkle, um, around my ninth birthday. And at that point, uh, my brother started turning me on to records. So now we're into the late sixties. My brother was like listening to Hendrix and, you know, the cream and, and, you know, it was always blazing out of his bedroom and I'd go in there and it was awesome. It was just a great time to grow up for music was amazing. And when the seventies hit, that was pretty much it for me. I, I was like already in a band in junior high school. I had a band in high school and it was all about Keith Moon. I wore a white jumpsuit. I was like, I wasn't really into Zeppelin. And I said this a lot, me and Paul, me and Paul Ill, we always chuck and jive on progressive music because all my friends were Zeppelin. And in those days, I don't want to say it was like Britney Spears, but it was mainstream. Zeppelin was like, Zeppelin was like a mainstream band, if that makes any sense. And yeah. then, so me and my weirdo buddies got into progressive music. You know, we were like into Genesis and Gentle Giant and, egg and gong and all these weird bands and <laughs> we just thought we were so cool and we'd go to the we'd go to the import section of the record store remember that yeah yeah the English imports and they'd be wrapped in plastic and we were just into experimenting so that's really was my sort of upbringing you know and I just loved it
0: when did you get did you get into it professionally when you started to get paid?
1: Well, I I uh, I was I was in a band like I said in high school called Prophecy, and the oldest guy in the band was this great guitarist, African American dude. He was uh, I don't want to say he was like Hendrix, but he he played a lot. He played a Strat, and uh, we started sneaking up to Hollywood, um, and I was like 14, 15 years old. So I'm talking 1974, 75, and we used to play this club called the Starwood on Santa Monica Boulevard. There was a Sunday night amateur night there, but you get a hundred bucks. So officially I was professional, even though it covered, you know, us getting some food and gas and a couple guys to help out or whatever, but we got paid a hundred bucks to play at the Starwood. And I was like, does that mean I'm a professional musician? (laughs) And I'm like, I guess so. And then uh, I loved it. I just loved the excitement of Hollywood. I remember walking through that parking lot and feeling this intense energy rush over me. Uh, all these crazy looking characters. And in those days, Rodney Biggenheimer moved his disco, the English disco, which used to be up on Sunset. He moved it down to the Starwood. So in one room was Rodney's English disco. And in the other room was the big rock room where I saw bands like Judas Priest. And I remember seeing Devo arrive on the scene, and which was if you remember, I think the late 70s, even the early 80s. And uh, bands that were just like mind-blowing. And um, that was it for me. As soon as I graduated high school, I headed straight to Hollywood and uh, never never turned back.
0: I'm curious because you seem to have a rock background and you haven't mentioned anything about teachers or, or schooling or anything for music. But I know that you did Burning for Buddy. You really have to have some jazz chops to do that.
1: Well, I'll tell you what happened. In high school, I was in I was in jazz band. Ah, okay. So in those days, you would get three electives. So you could do like your four, like math, science, all that stuff. And you were allowed to pick like, you know, it could be home economics or art or wood shop. And I picked wind ensemble jazz band and marching band. So I had three music classes a day and I had a great teacher named Terry Newman, who was this jazz saxophone player. Decided to be a teacher because he got got married, but he had, the guy had skills and I played in the jazz band. He always picked me. He loved me when I was playing like the Maynard Ferguson charts. Like there was a track, there was a, there was a version that Maynard did called chameleon and then it was like this yeah. funky uh, not tower power but the other one yeah, yeah. <laughs> that sounded like tower power but uh it was similar it was called and, and then we do like like main version version of saturday in the park i don't know if you remember maynard doing that yeah yeah and I always gravitated towards those, but it was a, you know, it was a horn band and we were actually really good. And it was like, you know, it had a swing and a funk thing. And I could never get around playing that light to be a jazzer. I love smacking them because I went to see Black Sabbath when I was like 14 and it was like life changing. I saw them; it was so heavy. And they and Bill Ward was Bill Ward was swinging like a jazz drummer. Yeah. But he was, he was just smashing them and I just loved it and I loved the way it felt. So I just became a heavy hitter, but um, to go the other way was more difficult for me to play subtle and, and with a lot of like that whole style of drumming, that's, that's a whole thing ilk on its own. I say to those guys, wow. And then they'll look at me and go, how do you hit like that? You know, it's a whole yeah. different animal. So when, when the Burning for Buddy thing came along, I got this call from Kathy Rich, Buddy's daughter. And she says, Matt, Neil Pert's producing these records. And right away, I'm like, Neil Pert, And I'm like, really? And, uh, she said, would you come play? He really wants you. And I do, too. And I'm like, oh, my God, I'm so honored. And at the same time, I was petrified. Uh, but I said, yes. And. I remember walking into the power station in New York and it was like, you know, uh, Omar Hakim and Steve Gadd and you know, yeah the, the cats. Yeah. Right. Like, Oh my God, really? And Dave Wackle going, Hey man, you've been woodshedding on your chart. And <laughs> so I picked this track, Bula witch, which was early buddy, sixties, sixties. He got more into like a funk. He was starting to experiment more like miles, you know, not, he didn't go as deep as Miles Davis. Miles got into like heavy metal, but uh, he started experimenting with funk groove. So I, that one I go, I can bite this off. This is good. This is something I think I could tackle. So I grabbed Bulu Witch and I remember going to the session and that take that you see is actually the first take. Wow. And I felt something come over me. There was this poster of buddy on the wall and I just looked at him. I said, I know I'll never be as good as you. That's just never possible, maybe for any drummer on planet Earth. But just give me some guidance. It was almost like a God-like thing. It's like, buddy, is God. You know, it's like jump into my body and show me the way. And I went, man, I started playing with that horn band. And those horns were set up in front of me live. We were live in that session. And it was powerful, man. That was the heaviest shit I've ever heard. And I played with Motorhead, so that yeah, yeah.
0: you.
1: <laughs> you know, huh? it was just like, da-da-da-da. it yeah. was so badass. And I was honored to be there, and I'm honored I got to do it. It came out great, and people always say that to me, wow, man, I didn't know, you know.
0: Yeah, it's a big change, and people don't perceive you as that. But you know what's funny? You mentioned about Bill Ward and how he swings, but all those English drummers, they all had a jazz background. They could all swing. And and you you pick out any of those early English bands and you go, what's different? Well, the drummers, they had that swing thing going from jazz background. It was awesome.
1: Yeah, uh, especially John Bonham. You look at him, I think his, he loved Motown. You know, he loved Little Richard, you know. Yeah. He listened to that stuff and incorporated it into the band and it was like, oh my God, you know. And, you know, my situation was, you know, I got in these real... Like the Colt was my first big band. And that was almost like ACDC. It was real meat and potato drum. And, you know, it still could swing. You know, the Colt have like a good below the waist kind of feel to it. And when Guns N' Roses came along, it was the early 90s when I made those records. Rhythmically, something had shifted from sort of like the hair metal era everyone was trying to emulate Kashmir, but they got it completely wrong. Yeah. Like, you know, down <clears throat> on swings. Yeah. But also came, ush, 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 you know, yeah. it became this, this thing. And the band had this like punk sensibility too, which was sort of aggressive and maybe a little bit on top of the beat, but it gave it the right amount of angst. And I understood it. Uh, getting back to those records uh it had a lot of echo on the snare drum shit like that you know yeah reverb was very important on a snare in those days yeah if they dried up those records if they went back and remixed them up it could probably it would have a more a better feel because the reverb wouldn't take up so much space if that makes sense
0: yeah yeah exactly how did you get the cult gig
1: Well, I was kind of a man about town, you know, I was playing and like, at one time I had 10 bands going, I I was like, Matt the mercenary was my nickname (laughs) and you could get me for a rehearsal for 25 bucks. And I would do your gig between 50 and 75. That was my rate. And I was really fast. I was a fast learner and I, you know, I could read and everything, but I could listen and pick it up. Like, uh, even part this happened, you know, I've gone on gigs and be like, Hey, you know, we got to learn these 10 songs and we're going to play those, you know, tomorrow, <laughs> you know, and for a drummer, it's not as difficult because you don't have to hit notes, but I just had that knack I could go and do a lot of shit, play a lot of gigs. So guys started hearing about me and there was this really cool drummer and we were sort of in line, drummer named Pat Torpy mm-hmm. and oh, yeah. He was playing with Jimmy Page and Robert Plant when they went out and did that tour, uh, just the two of them. And the Colts saw him first, Pat in the band. And Pat goes, I can't do it. I'm starting a band called Mr. Big, but I know this guy. And it was always me replacing him or him replacing me, you know? And I replaced him on another record called Jeff Paris. We were on Polygram Records. And I came in and filled in for him. So he, he hooked me up and then a couple of other people told them about me. And then I went to this rehearsal space. Of course I would shed it. And I tell every drummer that goes, for, or any musician that goes for a, uh, an audition, learn all their shit, <laughs> right? Yeah. And there was early versions of the cult that had Mark Brzecki on drums, more real spicy. And then they got in kind of this heavy era loose drummer named les warner but i tried to kind of cop their styles and went into my thing and i remember the part i was in all black and i looked at him, i studied them and i went in there and i got the gig you know it was my first real jump start into arena rock and it was great
0: how did that lead to guns and roses then well Guns N' Roses originally
1: opened for the cult uh, before I was in in the cult. And uh, so we're huge fans of the cult. And I remember playing at the, the old Universal Amphitheater, and Duff and Slash showed up at the gig and saw me play. And they they needed to replace their original drummer, Steven Adler. Um, and I was the guy that got the call. They called me up. The tour had ended. I was real sick. I had walking pneumonia on tour for like six months and I came home and I fell out I was in my, I was at my mom's house and uh, I got a call from Mike Klink, this producer, saying, hey, someone's calling you. My mom comes in the room and says, there's somebody named Slush on the phone. I was like, what? (laughs) I pick up the phone and of course, he's like, hey, it's Slash. Mom, it's Slash, not Slush. And (laughs) And anyway, Flash says, hey man, we saw you play last night or a couple nights before, whatever it was. And we really dug it, man. Can you come up and play with us? So I went up to I went up to LA and I I, I moved into the Oakwood apartments off Marham Drive. You know that is? Oh yeah. <laughs> the rock and roll like apartment building. You know, like divorcees or you know, band guys or wayward people. And uh went down and started playing with the guys on the intention that I was just going to record the records. And we just hit it off. I could drink with them. I was a good drinker. That was important. And, <laughs> you know, I got my, I got my wings with, with the coal. I mean, there was a, that was a British band. We drank pites of lager, right? So it was important to have camaraderie in a band in those days. We weren't, it wasn't, we weren't punching a time clock. We were, we were a gang of, you know, pirates. We were on a on a ship to, you know, pillage. And, and uh, that's what we did. And so I fit right in. They were like, we want you in the band, join the band. At that point, I started learning how to negotiate for myself. I got myself a membership position, you know, percentage. I wasn't a side man. It was great. I was in the band. I was in the band photo. You know, I was accepted in that group. Same with the cult though too.
0: I know you did uh, a tour with Motorhead. How did that happen?
1: Yeah. Well, throughout the years, I, I'd always run across Lemmy. You know, and I loved the guy. He was just...
0: At the Rainbow, was, probably, he, right?
1: Well, yeah, but I actually met him in England because I lived in London with the Cult. So the first time I met him, I was with this drummer named Randy Castillo, who's a really good buddy of mine who ended up passing away. And great drummer, cool dude rock and roll shenanigan guy with me and and we met him at this club in, in London and after that when he moved to Hollywood right away he was a fixture at the rainbow
0: yeah, right yeah.
1: and he'd call and he never had a car he never drove and I'd say hey let me you need a ride anywhere he called me one time and had to give him a ride somewhere. And we just became friends. And then he started playing with this group I had called Camp Freddy with Dave Navarro. I'd call him up. Let me come sing "God Save the, Saves the Queen" by by, pist- by the Pistols. He goes, "Oh, okay, that sounds good. Let's do some. Let's do some Eddie Cochran, too." He loved Eddie Cochran. He loved Rockabilly, and he loved he loved ABBA. <laughs> Who would have thought? Wow! I don't tell anybody. I go, that's fucking great songs." I mean, come on, yeah. they're the richest people from Sweden. It's <laughs> not the like, yeah. And so, but you know, I, I got this call one day, um, our drummer is going to do some stupid Swedish TV show and I need you. And I texted him back and I said, when? He said, meet us in Washington, DC. So I got this DVD of a Wacken Festival. He said, learn the set, meet us there. We'll get a sound check in and, and start the tour. And I was like, holy shit, wow. really? And the, the music was actually simple, but difficult at the same time, because it had similar beats. It was like a booga-baca, booga-baca. a lot of that, Yeah, different tempos. And I couldn't decipher some of them. It was like, holy shit, is this? <laughs> you know, <it's> like, yeah. <laughs> so yeah. I had to kind of put on my thinking cap with that. It was like, well, it was all about tempo, Uh, how hard did I have to put on the aggression? It was like a lot of intensity. It had to be intense. It had to be powerful and it had to be tempo. It had to be correct. Didn't like things too fast. He he liked them right. And like even on Ace of Spades, if I played that too fast, he'd turn around and look at me and go too fast. I pull it back. It was like, it was a medium between laying back and pushing forward, if that makes any sense.
0: Yeah, yeah. So you're playing on top of the beat, mostly.
1: On top of the beat, but like restrained. Yeah, yeah. Weird, like, you know, like aggressive, but just in it. So it was it was fun. It was like, I said it. I said, I could retire now. This was like <laughs> the pinnacle. It really was. It was a career highlight for me because the, that was a band that was a mainstay. It was like the Ramones, you know, it was yeah. like they're not going anywhere. They're not changing for anybody. You know, they're not going to change their outfit. They're not going to try to like create a song just because the times have changed. Everything was just, this is what we do. And that's, in my opinion, that's probably the most punk rock statement anyone can make. They yeah. just don't they don't assimilate what they do with what everybody else is doing they're just motorhead
0: changing the subject for a little bit i know you have quite the entrepreneur streak in you <laughs> and uh i know you've done a lot of different things that are related to music but not quite music how did that happen
1: well by accident you know i got i got invited to go down to brazil uh to make some records down there. And, you know, in Brazil, I'm not, I would say it's the closest I feel to being a Beatle. They treat me like Godhead. Because if you remember Guns N' Roses, and still to this day, we would pack stadiums down there, you know, multiple nights. We did Maracanã Stadium in Rio. Two nights sold out 150,000 a night. We were We were top one through six on the charts. <laughs> You know, like I got there, and I remember we were like one, two, three, four, five, and six, like on the charts, and just a huge band. To this day, I go down there. So anyway, they they just love me down there. So I go where people love me. You know what I mean? (laughs) Why not? Yeah, yeah. I always say that to musicians. They go, "Oh man, I can't get any gig." There's a lot of people in the world. Go out there and find them. You know? Yeah. So Brazil, I have this relationship with some people, and we ended up doing these records for global television, and then that morphed into a company that was uh, backing music and art, and then moved into a startup company, and we started building startups. Uh, We started with a thing called Artbit that is still in the works. It's actually taken almost four years, five years to build. And uh, these, these startup things sometimes get complicated with partners, and then... Uh, regulation, because we were doing something on the blockchain with cryptocurrency. It's very difficult.
0: Artbit is is a type of crypto, right? Artbit is is a
1: token, yeah. yeah. So out of that, we morphed into uh, biotech. <laughs> I'm, in a bi- I'm in a biotech company. It's ah. crazy, and I got invited to speak on uh, for the UCLA Global Business Blockchain Council, and I started. Learning about blockchain and understanding a lot of the solutions it could bring to music and art. And now what you see going on with NFTs is a prime example of peer-to-peer and direct-to-consumer and having a piece of something and and feeling like ownership, almost like back to the physical world of records. NFTs is now bringing it uh, into a digital world, but saying, oh, I can own this I can hold not hold it per se, but it's mine. And it's not just me streaming and this lackadaisical sort of like, I'm going to push a button and go get in an elevator. This is like this is direct contact with that particular artist, getting layers of fan interaction, however you want to perceive it in a tokenized world. And, the solutions that can happen in blockchain with with publishing, uh, ticketing, all those things, there's a lot of middlemen that can be cut out. And that will happen along the way as you see cryptocurrency becoming more and more of a mainstream and tokenization.
0: Do you think that's going to happen though? What I think is going to happen is there's going to be some federal regulations that are going to make it a lot less attractive. And I'm talking crypto in general, not just one in particular.
1: Well, if you look at the if you look at the 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 length of how long money has actually been on the planet, it's not that long. Before we used to trade in gold, silver, you know, tobacco. Yeah. When, they, when the settlers first came to America, there was no money. There was no cash. Money's money and cash has only been around for a certain amount of time, right? And that's for these people to put themselves in the middle of how to distribute it. And if you look at the economy in America and what's happened to the bank the banks in the of the world and all this debt we're in cryptocurrency sets this precedent on a world level there's no deciphering who's going to have the hierarchy right if it's the yen or the or the dollar or you know the pound or the euro and as much and as much as the regulation gets talked about the further it pushes through and the solutions it it helps with You know, guys like Jamie Dimon, the naysayers, are actually starting to whisper things. I mean, I met the guy at Davos. He hates it. But he hates it because he has a job pushing paper.
0: Yeah,
1: The guys in the record business have the same job. They have a job that we actually don't need them for because the blockchain and smart contracts could allow streaming and downloading of all your music to pay you in in real time. We could actually get streamed and with that digital information on a node, that currency could be all the players within that node on that particular piece of music, imagine this, would get distributed funds automatically. But the problem is companies like Spotify and all these big conglomerates have large buildings and guys on massive salaries. And... It's just another record company and pol- political situation that we're in. Fast forward to NFTs, it's another way to say, here I am. I'm not gonna throw my shit in the middle of, of Spotify and expect it to be found. I have to be more creative. I've got to create art, just like we used to do for, for album covers. Remember? We'd make the record, now we got to do the artwork. That would take six months sometimes. Just trying to figure out what it looked like, so I'm I'm excited about the NFT space and I'm in it. I have a, I have, I'm on a I'm I'm working I'm working on a really big NFT thing called Theos. Theos.fi, Check it out, and then I'm working on another NFT project that's NFT funding science, that's called the Global Pandemic Shield, and artist funding science, and and medicine. For people that can't afford it, in countries like Brazil, India, Africa, where they—if you see what's happening in those countries during this pandemic—the poor people are left to themselves. They're just like out there. Well, we haven't—you know—when Zika virus hit uh, Africa, did anybody care? No, because there's no money in it. It's Pfizer, Merck, these guys, Moderna. There's a. <laughs> They're going to get money from people in Africa? No. So they don't care about tropical diseases like Zika, malaria, dengue. Read up about dengue and see how many people die from dengue a year. You don't hear about it. Why? Because it's a tropical disease. It's a They call it a third world problem. So that's the kind of shit I'm into. And you know what? It's fascinating. For me, it's like, in music, I've done so much stuff. It's almost like a really exciting space for me uh, in a creative aspect. If it, it, you hear me talk about it, I get really passionate.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely.
1: I get like, oh my God, this is, we could solve a lot of problems. So I, you know, I've gone to Davos twice. I've spoken in front of Richard Branson and um, Sergey Brin of Google at, at the Necker Island in, in Morocco. Uh, so, the, I get invited to these things, and all my partners are Brazilian, so they speak Portuguese, right?
0: Yeah.
1: And they go, Mac, you have to tell them in English, you know. So, I'm basically a spokesperson for for stormgroup.io. Check it out, S T H O R M.io. Yeah.
0: Okay. Let's transition a little bit and talk about your book. Oh, before that, Drummer Beer. Where did that come from? Brazil. <laughs>
1: okay. Yeah, it was really funny because I always loved Brazil, right? Like, I remember going to Brazil and going, wow, what is this stuff? Acai. I was eating that stuff in 1990 when I was down there. And now I was like, we need to bring this to America. And I could have done that 20, 30 years ago, but I didn't. And then I saw those sandals down in Brazil called Javianas. And uh, these are great. You should bring these to America. So I was always into this drink called cachaça, which is a Brazilian tequila in a way. It's made from sugar cane. And everyone drinks it in Brazil. It's like a almost kind of like a tequila and they mix it with lime and sugar. It's like a margarita in a way. Yeah. And I was like, man, I really wanted to do this cachaça. And I called my friend Sammy Hagar, who's the rest of his history and what he did with tequila, hundred million deal. He says, yeah, that's great. It's a great brand, but the name stuff, cachaca. I go, yeah, you're right. So I ran across this guy. I was down there with my blockchain buddies and this beautiful, uh, distillery outside of, uh, uh, Sao Paulo called, uh, called Pirsicaba. And, uh, I drove out there to, to the sugar cane mill and, uh, I says to him, Gustavo, he says, You want to make a I want to make you a beer. And I said, let's call it O Baterista, which is Portuguese for the drummer. He goes, No, English, the drummer. I go, I'm in. That was it. It's coming, it'll launch in America September first at Bristol Farms.
0: What does it taste like? Can you compare it?
1: It's an American lager. It's uh it's made with Belgian hops. it's The distillery is a uh, Belgian style, but it's an American lager. And then we're gonna do two IPAs. And uh, I'm really tight with the guys at Bristol Farms. They have 12 stores here. So we're gonna start there. And then I'm gonna do a lot of stuff online, like fun, like drum circles and stuff.
0: Yeah,
1: and They're creating like a, a rhythm vibe, like based on rhythm, you know, the rhythm of your life, the drummer, blah, blah, blah. So. That was just like a fun, and the guy said, I'm going to do it, and he's doing it, and I'm, you know, behind it, so it's cool.
0: I can't wait. I can't wait. (laughs) Let's talk about your book. So you mentioned before it was four years in the making. I know a lot of brain cells die (laughs) in the making of a book. What brought this on? I
1: don't know. I mean, people would always say to me, I'd tell stories. My wife gets tired of them. She's like, oh, don't tell that one again, and People always say, oh, you got to write a book. You got to write a book. I tried to do it before with a couple of other writers, my old friend, Lon Friend, who used to work for RIP Magazine, years ago. And the timing was off and wasn't quite in the space where I am now, which I'm very And I'm like, I know what? It was like a really good thing to just sort of get it out, you know, and just write it. And I met with these two writers from Sweden. Uh, they're like a team, Leif Ferrickson and Martin Svensson. And these guys in Sweden, they speak better English than we do, you
0: know? Yeah, yeah.
1: And uh, they came to my house in Palm Springs and we sat there for, you know, we would do four or five days and I would just be exhausted. Four days of just telling stories, right? Yeah. And I would just be wiped out. I'm like, you guys, I can only do four days. I'm wiped out. Because it was so. Like a lot of stuff. And it took about a year to get that done and then edit. Um, then the pandemic hit, I was supposed to go on tour with it. So we just pushed it. I'm like, I can't go do Seth Meyers. Can't go to New York. It's was gonna do this bookstore tour. So I'm like, you know what? Let's hold on. We went back and I ended up doing this uh, vinyl record that goes with it. I don't know if you saw that. I did. It, I did. Yes. I did an audio record, but uh, just bits and pieces of the book and certain readings. It's almost like a spoken word thing over music. And I recorded it all up in Josh, at my friend's uh, Christopher Thorne, who was from the band Blind Melon. We were up in this cool like studio in the mountains and literally stayed up for like 48 hours and tracked the whole thing in two days. And uh, it came out really cool. And the book the book company is called Rare Bird. And they did uh, some cool books. They did a book for Angelica Houston. And she did a spoken word thing. I listened to it and I'm like, that's cool. I could do something. And I, each part of the book that I spoke about had a different musical sensibility. It was like a soundtrack. Yeah. And I'd done it before, so I understand how to bring it to it. Um, and that's gonna be final so when you buy, you'll get this final record. Oh, that's cool. I think there's a lot of pre-orders, so that's good.
0: Yeah, definitely. What did you learn from doing it?
1: Uh, I learned a lot about myself, you know, I look back and I learned that I've changed a lot. And I'm, it was interesting because I actually did three versions of an edit and every time I edited, I there was a lot of forgiveness in it, which was great. You know, I'm like, man, I don't need to talk like that or I don't need to say it that way. Little words that I take out. I'm like, I don't need to, that sounds bitter. I'm not gonna change that. I'm not bitter, but I sound bitter. Yeah. Or any kind of resentful sort of thing that I might've worded it in a certain way that it just came out like pointing a finger or... So that was a really great learning process for me to, to find forgiveness in a lot of the writings and also forgive myself and things that happened along the way. and You know, like any it's, any, it's a life story. It's just a life story. It's about a kid coming to Hollywood, trying to make it in rock and roll. Train goes off the tracks. <laughs> you know, it's almost like a VH1, uh, you know, story. But uh, train gets back on the tracks. Hardest part to write was the end of the book. You know, obviously I'm married and I'm happy. And I had my first baby. And that's not juicy enough for some people. I'm like, well, sorry.
0: <laughs> Did you have trouble remembering certain things with accuracy? And the reason why I bring this up is I co-wrote a book, the autobiography of Ken Scott. Ken was one of the, the five Beatle engineers and recorded Bowie and, and whatever, right? So he goes way back to the, the 60s, obviously, with the Beatles. And there was a lot of times when he would go, I, I, you know, I just don't remember. And the good thing was, I got to talk to a lot of other people, and everybody kind of remembers it differently sometimes. There is one thing in particular. So Ken is talking about his early days at Trident, and he tell me about how it's all laid out and how they have a machine room upstairs and all the tape machines are up there. And out of nowhere, I get a call from a former roadie of mine, and we come from a small town in Pennsylvania, 5,000 people. And he went on to be a roadie for another band that happened to record at Trident around that same time, and he had a bunch of pictures. So he sends me these pictures, and there's one picture that has Ken with Roy Thomas Baker in the control room yeah. with the tape machine in between them. Wow. So I call up Ken. I said, Ken, so you said there's never a tape machine. He says, no, it never happened. Ken, I have a picture right here. No, that never happened. That can't be right. I talked to all the other people, the maintenance people, everybody else that were there. No, we never had that. No. I said, I got a picture. Look, it's right here. Wow. And finally, somebody said, oh, yeah, I remember. Maybe we did that for about a week. No, I did really well with it. You know, it's weird for me. When one
1: story, it opens up these, remember other things. People used to say that to me. They're like, rain, man. I like to remember so much shit. Even as much as I drank and partied, I always took it all in. I used to joke. I used to say, this is going to be really good for the book because I can remember room numbers. There's a story in the book where me and Ian Asbury from the cult almost burned down this hotel. And to this day, it was 1989. It was room 626. And I would always put things together with why I remember. If I met somebody and their name was dave i would connotate that with my dad or you know whatever that was i'd connect the dots
0: yeah yeah right
1: so i had this i had this memory bank that's pretty insane and uh, and then it opened up a lot of things that i forgot about but they would open up and i go bing and there it was it's in there it's in the cavity right
0: you can find out more about matt at matt that's matt m-a-t-t sorum s-o-r-u-m dot com Thanks for listening and being in my inner circle. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyosinski.com. To listen to other episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, go to bobbyosinski.com and select the podcast tab, or go to bobbyoinnercircle.com, or you can find it on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Mixcloud, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Deezer, TuneIn Radio, Radio Public, and Podbean